is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing what many critics have called the last great newspaper comic, and what many fans consider to be the greatest comic ever published, Calvin and Hobbes. Launched on November 18, 1985, Calvin and Hobbes is the seminal work of cartoonist Bill Watterson, whose newspaper comic strip about a young boy and his stuffed tiger, both of whom are named after notable philosophers, captured the hearts and minds of readers across the United States and around the world. For much of its 10-year run, Calvin and Hobbes was one of the most popular funnies around, known for its lacerating wit, its genre-baking artwork, and most of all, its genuine look at the joys, hardships, follies, and foibles of being a kid. Calvin is a six-year-old boy who, to modernize, probably suffers from equal measures of ADHD, genius intellect, a real talent for poetry, an inability to restrain the devil on his shoulder, and a disdain for the mediocrity that defines so much of adult life. His constant companion is the tiger, Hobbes, who appears merely as a stuffed toy when other people are in the room. But when we see Hobbes as Calvin does, we see a living, breathing tiger, a tiger modeled after Watterson's own beloved cat, Sprite. Hobbes is Calvin's accomplice, his wingman, his sparring partner, his sibling, and his often unheard conscience and sense of better judgment. There has scarcely been a more entertaining and satisfying fictional partnership to grace a newspaper broadsheet. And backed up by a small but memorable cast of side characters, including Calvin's beleaguered parents, his teacher, Miss Wormwood, the school bully, Moe, the babysitter, Rosalind, and Calvin's nemesis slash suppressed love interest, Susie Durkins, Calvin and Hobbes had a foundation strong enough for Watterson to keep mining it for the rest of his life, but he chose not to. After having achieved the remarkable task of getting into more than 3,000 newspapers, renegotiating the design terms of his Sunday strips, and successfully resisting his syndicate's pressure to merchandise Calvin and Hobbes, Watterson called it quits. He said he had done what he wanted to do with the strip and would retire it. The final strip ran on December 31st, 1995. Calvin and Hobbes would not be handed off to a successor or carried on by his syndicate. There would just be the various collected volumes of the strips to buy in bookstores, the occasional museum exhibit of Watterson's work, and the very occasional interview from this famously media-shy creator. Watterson retreated to a quiet life in the American Southwest to pursue painting, satisfied not only with having created a comic that was by turns hilarious and thought-provoking, but with having resisted the immense urge to turn his creation into a mass-market behemoth, and with having the integrity to set his pens and brushes aside when it mattered most. That so many people look fondly upon Calvin and Hobbes now, some 25 years after the strip ended, speaks to the immortal qualities that make this cartoon such a gleaming treasure to behold. During its run, Calvin and Hobbes won every major cartooning award to be won, including multiple Eisner and Harvey Awards. In uh, 2020, it was inducted into the Will Eisner Award Hall of Fame. It is a strip that has deeply influenced countless other creators and has helped to redefine what the artistic and commercial parameters of what cartooning is and could be, newspaper or otherwise. I have looked on Calvin and Hobbes with much fondness and love ever since its inaugural strip, so let's get into it. With me today is Senior Fellow at the Institute for Parental Polling, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. Head Curator of the Museum of Modern Snow Art, Tom Hespos. You don't like my snowman house of horrors, do you? <laughs> and the Get Rid of Slimy Girls Executive Minister of Water Ballooning, Joe Pace. Good evening, everyone. 
<laughs> Fantastic. Well, like Joe, let's start with you. I'd love to hear you about your moment of truth because I think you, what you and I had discussed before we started recording kind of sets a great tone for some of the some of the ground rules of this strip in general in terms of who Calvin is, who Hobbes is, and the relationship between the two. So why don't you take it away? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Bill. I mean, listen, like like everyone else, I enjoy this story because it's funny. It's about this uh, precocious, more thoughtful version of Dennis the Menace and his real and yet not real pal. And my kids love it because you can read it, you can absorb it on that you know, fairly surface level of the, the comedy that's involved and the, the byplay that happens. And the other, you know, Tom and, and Chris and yourself will, will go on about some of the other aspects of it that are so enduring and so hilarious. But it's hard for me not to bring my social scientist, my political scientist, my historian hat and really revel in what Watterson was doing here with the naming of his protagonists. He has Calvin, and of course he's named after John Calvin, the 16th century Protestant reformer who really advanced this idea of predestination. He said that all of us are saved or not uh, before we're even born. And of course for Calvin, the character in the strip, that is a get out of jail free card. It doesn't matter what I do, I can do whatever I want. Exactly. And, and, and he at one point I think says, you know, if, there's, if it's all fate and no free will, then, then none of it matters and let's have a good time every day. Uh, which a lot of that informs the Calvin character. This kid is, is pure id, right? This kid is, is you mentioned it earlier, uh, impulse control would not be something that is, is uh, one of his strengths. No. The, the philosopher Calvin said that his basic premise was that humans are depraved. We are creatures of base appetites. And so that's what Watterson has really informed the character of, of Calvin with is he is a character of appetites. He wants to go fast on his sled or his wagon. He wants to be a spaceman fighting bug-eyed monsters. He wants to give his teacher and his parents a hard time. He wants to you know, make snowmen and he wants to give Susie all she can handle. So Calvin is living life out loud. That's very much um, in keeping. Now, Thomas Hobbes was about 100 years later than John Calvin. He was an English social philosopher. Uh, he was a, a realist and absolutist. He was utterly unimpressed with Calvin's philosophy. He did not have any truck with these you know, high dilemmas of the human condition. Hobbes was the one who said that life is, is nasty, brutish, and short. <laughs> and so we're all just, just, just trying to get by the best he can. He brings a reason and a maturity. He is the superego to Calvin's id in the strip. Yeah. Um, and, and he is the one that leavens all of Calvin's most base uh, impulses with, with sort of this like on your shoulder, this angel on your shoulder saying, is that really a good idea? What we all wish that our children had when they go out into the world is, is this conscience or someone to remind them that we shouldn't maybe act on every thought that we have. But what I love most about it is that, you know, yes, that uh, Watterson is sufficiently read that his characters draw at least somewhat from this, this philosophical background. But there is a, there's a political and a philosophical overtone to the strip, and, and he deals with this really forthrightly. And probably one of my favorite strips, and it takes place on the wagon as they're going down the hill. And I, and I have to, I have to wagon, say... I have, wagon philosophy is one of the great like meta right? themes of this whole strip. Like The best things Calvin says is when he's like careening down this hill on a wagon, like on his way to kinetic oblivion, right? I have never, I have never had prolonged conversations with a tiger or anyone else on a sled or a wagon going down a hill at Mach three. It's just not something I've ever done. But, but there's one where they're going down, and, and Calvin is saying, he said, when I grow up, I'm not going to read the newspaper, and I'm not going to follow complex issues, and I'm not going to vote. That way, I can complain that the government doesn't represent me. Then, when everything goes down the tubes, 
I can say the system doesn't work and justify my further lack of participation. And Hobbes, with that look on his face of, of disappointment <laughs> that he will get, he says, an, ing an ingeniously self-fulfilling plan. And then Calvin makes, the, he has the button line, which to me is perfect. It's a lot more fun to blame things than to fix things. <laughs> and, and, and to me, this exchange that they have is like, you know, Hobbes is, is this long-suffering sounding board, right? This yeah. long-suffering opportunity for Calvin to bounce things around and, and think about how he thinks. And he's just, like the rest of us, Calvin's conscience is perpetually disappointed in him. <laughs> and I, yeah. and I, think, I think, you know, we, we all of us think like, oh, what if this and this would be great and that would be great. And I, uh, no, probably not. Probably yeah, not a good Probably idea. not, exactly. So when you get to the whole notion of Hobbes is alive and well and, and active in certain contexts of the, of, the, of the strip, and in other contexts, he's just, he's just a stuffed toy. You know, Watterson is about, you know, subjective reality, right? And he was all about like, well, this is how Calvin sees Hobbes. So when Calvin sees Hobbes, Hobbes is up and around talking. So for me, Hobbes is ultimately, you know, coming from within Calvin. And so as much as I love seeing Hobbes kind of like be that better angel that gets brushed off, He's always there with a good line when things go kind of belly up and he's kind of, you know, not quite I told you so, but sort of like, hey, I knew, it, I knew this would happen kind of comment. That's coming from within Calvin. So I keep thinking like there is hope for Calvin as a kid. He has this within him that he's just warring at it because he's a super cranked up six-year-old. It's like, okay, you know what? I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't expect too much of the kid. He's only six, you know, but I love that role that Hobbes plays, to your point, Joe. And he's a, and he's a deeply precocious six, let's be clear. I mean, he, he, okay. he, brings up, he brings up concepts. I love when he's in school and the teacher asks him something and he tries to take it a whole different way. He tries to hijack it <laughs> or he tries to do something else. Yeah. And at one point, you know, he says, I think, you know, the teacher asks a question and he, and he says like, well, we're all going to die eventually. So why do we need to study integers? And, 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 and she kind of gives him a hard time. Mrs. Wormwood. Uh, Wormwood. Says, um, and, and his response is like, you know, you know, nobody appreciates us big picture people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, Calvin, Calvin is smart. He also fancies himself as very, very smart. Um, yes. Like, like six-year-olds tend to do. Yes. Yes. I do love it when, Hobbes and, and Calvin like diverge and even start to fight after a while. And, you know, and like they've had some knockdown dragouts, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, like they come, they come <laughs> to blows. And there are times when Susie Durkin's walking by and there's Calvin just having a rager with this tiger and they're just like going at it. And it's like they're both bloody and beaten up. And like she's like, what is going on? And he's like, it, it, this is serious. And just, it's just going, going at it. It's so great. I love that. There's a beautiful one where they're in bed together. Clearly, Hobbes wants to go to sleep. But Calvin says, oh, I wonder, you know, like, what the meaning of life is and why are we here and what's the purpose of humanity? And there's a beat. And then Hobbes looks over and he goes, tiger food. <laughs> and Calvin rolls over and goes back to sleep. Like, okay, I got <laughs> yeah. you. Okay. <laughs> well, well, that's, a, that's the thing I liked about Hobbes being named after Hobbes a philosopher, right? Because when you read like Leviathan, you know, life is nasty and brutish and short, but if you have a strong central authority, if you have that monarch you can look to to impose order on this horrible thing, then everything will be okay. When he's trying to talk Calvin off the ledge a little bit, there's a bit of a tone of, maybe your parents aren't wrong. Maybe Miss Wormwood actually has something for you to do. Maybe you should maybe do your chores. Maybe you shouldn't plaster Susie from behind with the snowball. He's offering this framework of like law a little bit that of course, you know, Calvin just blows off. But the thing I love about that is that he is this voice of conscience and a slight voice of reason, but he's also a cat. Like he's still, at the same time, he is himself the avatar of that nasty, brutish and short existence. Every time he pounces on Calvin, every time he ambushes him from beneath a the chair, there's no reason to that. There's no you know structure. It's just pure 
animal energy. So it's like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bundle of contradictions, but a delightful one. And it contradicts itself enough to give it energy and for it to be really rich. I feel like uh, one of Calvin's characteristics is that he, he has an incredible imagination. I mean, obviously. Oh, yeah. And, and yet he almost completely lacks empathy. And Hobbes, you know, the predator is the, the, the one who's like poking him. Hey, hey, you need to, you need to think about this different. Yeah. Wasn't there an entire storyline about, was it a, I can't remember now, a bird or a squirrel or something they found that was like died that they tried to bring back to, was yeah, it? Flips. Yeah. And it was in the first year. It was a dead raccoon. They, they That's what it was, raccoon, the raccoon. And yeah. Alvin's really upset about it. He's very broken up about it. He runs back to his parents. And it's interesting that the raccoon is off stage the entire time, right? And for a strip that didn't have that many story arcs, this was a an early story arc. And they go and they grab the raccoon and we learn that, you know, his parents spring into the garage and they put in a box and they're trying to care for it. And his mom is like very upfront. She's like, oh, sweetie, honey, you know, he's hurt really bad. He's probably not going to make it. And Calvin's like, oh, but we can still take care of him, right? He goes, of course we can. And it's a very tender moment from the parents, right? It's, it, which is kind of cool. And then of course they learned that the raccoon died and, and his dad's like, yeah, I'm sorry, buddy. We, you know, we lost him and you know, he's broken up about it. The funny thing is that like half that strip is Calvin kind of grasping with this notion of why does this little raccoon have to die? I don't get it. It turns into him turning to Hobbes. You know, I love you, buddy. Don't you ever die on me? And he's like, I wouldn't, you know, and the empathy is deep for his friend. And, and it's, it's funny, Chris, when I reread these strips, you know, I thought about it in terms of what does it mean to be a young kid, especially like a super intelligent kid who maybe just has serious attention problems, right? Maybe Calvin is just really disappointed in what he sees in his classmates. So I wonder if his lack of empathy is in part just a chronic disappointment in the fact that he's on a whole different harmonic frequency <laughs> and the universe he inhabits and just yeah. like he, he just can't he just can't relate you know so well, I'm that's how sure sociopaths the... are right oh I mean, come on you're not going to sociopath he's not a sociopath come on well, uh, when, when, when we get to tom we will talk more about that we can talk more about that, but I, I would I would not call Calvin a sociopath. I, I, would I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't level sociopathy. And I've, I've worked with some kids who have, let's call it, uh, learning differences and would include everything from, you know, dyslexia to ADHD to anxiety to executive mm -hmm. functioning to impulse control and all that sort of stuff. And harmonic frequency is an interesting way to put it, Bill. These kids, they think about things in a different and a deep way that will often surprise you um, and inhabit these parallel universes. I don't think sociopathy because I don't think they, I don't think Calvin lacks empathy. I think he lacks the concept of consequences, which is not unusual for a six-year-old. Or a sociopath. <laughs> He's six years old, man. Come on. Cut. All, well, look, all kids are sociopaths. Well, you know, that too. And like, I feel like this was a strip that, you know, look, look at some of the other things that this strip was running against. But like, I, I put it in the same bucket as Bloom County. Yeah. I put it up there, you know, with Far Side. Like, these are the things that were all starting to like push the envelope, I think, a little bit. And when, when you talked about a little bit more thoughtful Dennis the Menace, I really started to think of Calvin as this, you know, all right, well, he's got some out there moments. But in my own head canon, never did I think that he, you know, ended up you know struggling against the straps on a straight jacket in a rubber room somewhere like everybody <laughs> I, I think likes to think of him as you know this guy who you know all right maybe he mellowed out like a little later yeah and you know maybe he uh did you know end up uh, marrying Susie Durkins I don't know but like I feel like the kid just totally turned out normal and this is just kind of like a phase that he's in kids are always in that sort of place where they're 
uh, divided between imagination and reality. And Calvin mm. lives in that space all the time. And you yeah. know, I think the readers like to think of it that way. And yeah. that's why I think it was so elegantly handled. He kind of put us into that space where like, I don't ever think that he's he's a crazy kid or he's an ex exceptional kid in, in that kind of way. I, I think he's normal. <laughs> I do think that to some extent, all kids are kind of sociopaths. You know, oh yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> ch children are, are inherently self-centered. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. They can't help hard. it. It's not their fault. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's something that they grow out of. And, and we presume Calvin does. I don't even consider him unhealthy, but mm. I mean, he's a handful anyway. <laughs> there's, there's, to, to that point, there's a great, there's a great strip. It's sometimes Watterson, I mean, he often griped though at having to do his craft within what he called the tyranny of panels, right? Like having to do it within the strict panel breakout of a syndicated cartoon strip. And that was especially true with the Sunday funnies where there was a very prescribed panel layout. You gave them in certain sizes, certain things and all that. He really hated that. As much as he said he, he hated writing in that kind of format, he was extremely good at just using like one panel instead of a joke. And to your point, there's this great little story where he and Susie are fighting because he's always trying to cheat off of Susie, right? And Susie's like giving him like just fake numbers, you know, just to get him to go away. And he makes some noise and Wormwood busts them both and sends them both to the principals, mm -hmm. right? And so for Calvin, it's just like another day, right? But Susie's like, right. OMG. She's like, oh, she's, yeah, she can't believe it. She's like, oh my God, this is going my record. Like she's already like completely- know where this path leads. Yeah, yeah, yeah right? Yeah. <laughs> she uses the phrase permanent record. I'm pretty yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's in front of the principal and she, go, and she gets in front of the principal and she's like, it's like, it was an issue. It, it was, it, look, it was all, like, Calvin got it started. And the principal goes, oh, we have a file on your friend Calvin. And he was <laughs> just, sick <laughs> file. <laughs> It's a huge like dossier. Yeah. It's yeah. a huge dossier. And it's got like all different kinds of media sticking out and paper clips and loose. Like it's just this massive bundle. It's like, and the kids. There's some stuff on legal paper yeah. in there. So they had to <laughs> file then, something with the authorities, you know. Yeah, but, the, but this kid's been in the school system for two years. <laughs> <laughs> it just kills me. That panel just slaughters me so much. Just to be able to, yeah, but yes. Yeah, so. Let's not forget that Watterson gives his teacher a name directly from C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. Yeah. Right? He, he, the Apprentice Devil. Yes. The screw tape. So we, we've already set up Calvin as being the good guy in that interaction. <laughs> yeah. Do do you do you think her name is really Wormwood though? I've always suspected though that that's Calvin's version of it. Like, because Calvin has read the screw tape letters. No, no, well, it, which is entirely it's not the first place that phrase appeared yeah, either. He, he, no, word. no, Watson came out that that's been verified that her name is Wormwood and it was a reference to the devil and screw tape letters. So, I did my homework, man. <laughs> it's like that, dude. <laughs> yeah, well, Ridley Scott way. came out and said that Decker was a replicant. <laughs> my my two things with Wormwood are that at one point she just talked, she's talking, Calvin does something, and she goes, just two more years to retirement. <laughs> right? She's like, she's such like, she's short. She, she knows it. Now, and there's a funny thing about how Calvin mentions, like, he picks up on the fact that she smokes an awful lot and probably does because of the stress of the job. <laughs> I had, a, I had a teacher in high school that looked a lot like Ms. Wormwood. <laughs> <laughs> what you've essentially set up is this devil versus Daniel Webster dynamic, right? Yeah. Where like, you've got the smart, 
mortal mm-hmm. who is going up against the devil and the devil is like oh i can't even handle this <laughs> it's too much it's, 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 it's too much for me it's, to it's handle. just too much well you know the thing is waterson actually he was pretty preoccupied with the notion of people looking upon comics and cartooning as low art and i think he he went out of his way to try to add i think you know when you look at the body of his work he's a naturally thoughtful insightful kind of person i mean i think these he didn't have to put himself through contortions to get this sort of aspect into his work that really deepens it. I know that there was an aspect that he knew people were looking down upon his craft because of the, just the nature of it. And that bothered him, you know, and I think it's one of the reasons why it fueled his rebellion against some of the, the constructs of the craft because he wanted to do more with it. He knew it could be, it could be more than what people thought it was, you know? And I think when he does things like he didn't have to name Wormwood, Wormwood, he did it because that was Watterson. That's how Watterson is, you know, and he does this thing. I thought it was kind of a cool aspect of it. Uh, you know, moving along, I'd like to get to Chris's moment because Chris's moment talks about another crucial aspect of this whole thing, which is Calvin's relationship with his parents, which is just delightful. I know, Chris, there's one particular aspect you want to you get into, so I'm just going to get out of the way and let you take the mic here. My favorite part of the script is uh, Calvin's relationship with his dad. His dad loves him. There, there's no doubt about that. But, oh, he lies to him all the time and lies to him in the funniest conceivable ways. There are, I I don't know, innumerable strips like this. Maybe the simplest one is when the family drives over a bridge. (laughs) I think it's the first one he does, actually. Calvin asks, well, how how do they know how much weight this bridge can take? And, And his dad says, well, they drive bigger and bigger trucks across it until it falls down. Then they weigh the last truck and rebuild the bridge, which obviously is ludicrous. <laughs> we've, and, all, we've all answered our kids' questions that way. Yes. We all oh, have. Well, that's where I'm going. <laughs> oh, okay. No, sorry, sorry. <laughs> now, now, his mom... This is the ancient sport of kings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> his mom has the final panel saying, dear, if you don't know, just tell him that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I thought this was the funniest thing in the world. I mean, now, you know, this strip started when I was in junior high school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was mostly reading it in high school and college. And I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Whenever one of these strips came up, it really did impact me as a parent. I'm ashamed <laughs> to say. Oh, me too. <laughs> I love doing this to my kids. Or, oh, yes. or I did. Uh, you know, from about four to to ten, oh, yeah. I, any chance I got, I would I just relished it. I, I would make up the most ridiculous explanations for things, and and mm-hmm. and just sort of tease them along until they figured it out. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. like which is not what Calvin's dad does. Actually. No, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you get the sense Calvin's like walking yeah. off, like actually believing this stuff. Yeah, there, there's a there's a strip when that happens. There's a great Sunday strip where so it's like a double length, so it really gets into it. They're on the porch looking at the sunset and how colorful the sky is, and Calvin's <laughs> dad. He starts spinning this grand tapestry of a lie about how back for the 30s, everything looked black and white because everything God, was black and white, one. right? <laughs> and Calvin's like, but but how come, but that's the case, then why did artists paint in color? He goes, well, most artists were insane. He was like, <laughs> oh, he goes, and plus the paints were gray. They just turned to color when everything else did in the 30s. He's like, huh. And he goes, what about photos back then? Well, they were color photos, but remember, they're color photos of a black and white world. It's like, oh, right. And like, and Calvin does walk off, like thinking this is true. Yeah, he, he's, he, he, wa- he, he leaves yeah. and says, the world is a complicated place, yeah. Hobbs. <laughs> his, dad, his dad's like, 
mission accomplished. We'll get back to this. <laughs> it's so funny. That one is my favorite of these strips. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, brilliant. no, it's, it, it, it's it so cracks funny. me up so deeply. And I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know if this says something about being a father or just about me. Apparently, judging by y'all's reactions, uh, it's not just me, <laughs> but it's just so deeply funny. And I've seen it suggested that Calvin's dad lies to Calvin because he has contempt for him. No and I, I, I do not no think way. that's true at all. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there's a certain, of course, you know, I'm the dad, you're the kid. Mm -hmm. yep. There's not equality there or anything, but I, I don't see contempt. I see it as affectionate. I have to suspect so does Calvin's mom, or she would put a stop to it. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. she, she sees it all the time and just sort of rolls her eyes. Yeah. It's pretty clear to me that Calvin comes by his imagination, honestly, by his father. And his father probably was a lot like Calvin when he was a kid. And this is a way that they communicate, right? And, yeah. and I think that it probably continues as they go older and they throw bad stories off of each other and they're both these stem winders. And you can see them being adults and later in life, Calvin having his own children and them doing it together to Calvin's kids. Yeah, right. Right. His contests with his father are almost always mental, and his contests with his mom are almost always physical. His mom is wrestling with, like, literally chasing after him to get him in the get bathtub. In the yeah. You know, right. Or he's hitting her with a water balloon or something like that. Whereas, like, his dad, like, he's going and he's hitting him with the pinion poles by his armchair, or he's, like, you know, trying to you know, talk him into certain different things. And they have a very verbal kind of sparring match. You know, and you, I think also because part of it is the whole, like, dad's away at work. And so he's the guy who comes home to, to the aftermath of what, what Calvin has done. So at that point, it's done. It's already, you know, he can't really take action but there are a couple of strips where he said you know like he's made these little offhanded comments about you know trying to spend more time at work because yeah. yeah. home to that yeah. you know mess. but chris yeah. I think it's a great compliment to watterson that this has changed your parenting style i think you know <laughs> it's around to him that's a high compliment right there man i wonder how many other dads have been influenced by this strip into like messing right straight up 100 percent. i did it so much with my kids that we had to establish a safe word for when dad is really, <laughs> and, and they came up, they, they, my kids generated the safe word fladoodles. And fladoodles was, if they asked fladoodles, that was the circuit breaker. I had to stop all joshing around and, and go, okay, no, no, sorry. I'm, now I'm going to tell it to you straight. My kids now had become really hard bitten in terms like, you can't get a lie past them. Like they are really good at it. Like <laughs> I can try to BS them and they're like, no, uh, uh like I feel this, what you're saying, Chris, because me and Connor, would do this so often and now connor is just like nothing gets by him he is like so sharp he's just like i see all nothing no, Look, no. I, bill i i would like to say that that i did this for my children's benefit but uh i'd be lying oh no 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 this is, no, no. This, this is you know the radioactive spider happened to give superpowers the spider wasn't trying to give superpowers okay like it, it was just a happy accident i was just having fun with my kids but I also one of my one of my favorite strips is is one that has only one line of dialogue in it. And Calvin's father is sitting in a chair reading the paper, and Calvin walks up and he's got a paper bag and he blows it up, and then he bang he, he pops it and he yells, "Pay attention to me!" <laughs> and it's like yeah. uh, to me that is such a great insight into the character of Calvin yeah. because he just he just wants his dad to pay attention to him. Yeah, right. And so like when I my kids like my kids are ten and twelve and they still are in the dad. Mom, like every sentence has to be prefaced by who they're trying to get to pay attention with. Yeah. And it makes me like, I have this initial visceral reaction of like, oh my God, I'm trying to do something. And I, I think of that strip and I think that it's not going to last forever. And there'll come a day when they don't 
blow that paper bag yeah. and demand to be paid attention to. Right. And so I'll put down whatever I'm doing, right? And go, okay, what are yeah. we talking about here? Much like Calvin's dad comes out to play catch with him. Yeah. Because it matters. This strip does seem to be immortal. My younger stepson, Owen, absolutely loves Calvin and Hobbes. And there were always two or three of, of the trade paperbacks on his floor in his bedroom. And this kid, he was a Calvin. He had that sort of trenchant, gimlet-eyed, <laughs> you know, just just focus on on what mattered in, yeah. in a given conversation. And he, he was sometimes almost terrifying, like Calvin, you know, like, <laughs> oh, my God, <laughs> this kid. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. The, sharing it with my kids has been a real joy. Yeah. And uh, something I'm going to treasure for the rest of my life, no doubt. We we scooped up like Yukon Ho and like one of the other trade paperbacks at a garage sale for like 25 cents. And that was like in Thomas's room forever. He loves those books. Absolutely. Yeah. And I just taught him how to get on the server and pluck off, you know, some of the digitized versions that we have. And uh, he's loving it. <laughs> <laughs> it is fantastic. I read an article about the legacy of Calvin and Hobbes and it talked about how there are large portions of it that are just not relatable to kids nowadays because Calvin doesn't have a smartphone. There's no internet and all that. And he's, he's like the last of the free range children who can kind of run around with that supervision and, and most kids couldn't possibly understand it. I just disagreed vehemently with that article because the kind of childhood that Calvin and Hobbes portrays maybe doesn't fully exist in large swaths of America anymore, but it's kind of besides the point. I mean, I think there is a universal appeal to it. I think kids who are separated from this stuff by many, many years and do not require a translator to get this stuff. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty, Watterson, Watterson was casting an old kind of magic with this. He really was. And uh, the experience of, of childhood will, you know, it evolves and is different, but I, I don't care. Like my kids will pick up early, you know, peanuts, they'll pick up this, they'll pick up, and, and, and it speaks to them. My kids love the Archie comics. My kids love the, you know what I mean? It almost doesn't matter if it's, if it's storytelling, they find a, a way to, to translate it. Yeah. You know, I got to say, um, there are a couple other points when I was thinking about what Chris is going to say about, about his father lying to him. There, there are a couple other great aspects of this, this, that Calvin and his father relationship where there's this one great thing where they're doing the bedtime stories. Like that was like a meta theme was, was Calvin's dad doing bedtime stories and he wants to do a different story. So he tells Calvin the story of the disembodied hand. And he's like, what? And he does a whole trick where you put your hand under your sweater and comes up and you're like, ah, and he chokes himself. And Calvin, like he faints dead away. And Calvin's dad's like, I need to do this more often. <laughs> it's like, I defy any dad who struggled to put their kid down to look at that strip and not go, yeah, no, man's got to figure it out. Like, yeah. you, can't, you can't hold nice that one, one against him. You can't. Uh, my trick's Benadryl, but uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Bubblegum flavor, you like it. My, my all-time favorite is uh, the, the kid asks the father, um, dad, can, can we go to a haunted house sometime? The father says, you don't like the one we live in? <laughs> After all the issues that kid has. See, that's the kind of lie I would tell you. <laughs> yeah. but, but there's a great one where, where Calvin's, he's, a, he's like playing like a record, right? And his dad's like, oh, hey, you want to look at something neat? And he goes, look at these points of the record. It's like two points. The point closer to the, closer to the center is spinning at one speed. And on the outside, it's spinning at another speed. And he sort of explains the whole thing and walks off. It just cuts to Calvin at night in his bed, eyes wide open. Just like, 
<laughs> grappling with this mind-blowing knowledge. His dad just dropped it on him. <laughs> just blew his buffer, man. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one, the one where uh, where where Calvin asked Dad to explain the theory of relativity to him. Oh my god. You, uh, you know how like one. when you fly to LA on a five-hour flight, you you pick up three hours. Well, it's the same thing, but you know. That's why the theory of relativity only works when you're going west. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's such a plausible explanation. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's like, why not? Yeah, but that's the sort of thing, like, like kids can't, they're not equipped for that sort of like seriously bulletproof and weaponized mistruth. Like, just bang, you know, you, and, it, and you add that authority, like, you yeah. have to accept it. It's just like, Dad knows everything. Exactly. You can learn exactly. a lot talking to me, kid. <laughs> it may or may not be true, but you can learn something. You can learn something. Exactly. So, well, like, um, I want to move on to Tom's moment of truth. But before we get there, I'd like to talk about mine only because I think it's going to be a nice setup for, for Tom here. So I'd like to talk a little bit about my favorite strip. but also my moment of truth for the whole thing with Calvin and Hobbes. And it really, it's, it's the final strip. When Watterson announced that he was going to quit the strip, he did it like, you know, well in advance. There was a lot of brouhaha over like, oh my gosh, he's quitting the strip. Why would he do this? There was kind of a big buildup to it. And like people were going to have to say goodbye to the strip. One of the reasons why Watterson was quitting the strip is like he didn't want to go down the same avenue as so many other cartoonists who will get a strip and just simply get it set up, have it be self-sustaining in a certain number of papers. And then they'll just crank it out the same jokes for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And, you know, and people kind of expected that from Calvin and Hobbes and they weren't going to get it. So he's like, no, nope, I'm going to quit it. And that's going to be it. So to appreciate this final strip, first of all, I think you got to talk about the Sunday strips, which like any newspaper strip, the Sundays were a fair bit bigger in color, but you know, because of the way the syndicates worked, when you did a Sunday strip, you had a very strict panel layout you had to abide by okay and it was so the editors would have basically layout discretion so if they wanted to cut your strip down to a certain size they could move the panels around and it would still work and all that which is why if you look at sunday strips they often have that bar on the top with the two with the one big panel and the smaller panel it just creates like a throwaway joke is because they had to be able to create a panel that if they wanted to the editors could just lop off that top panel and still run your strip watterson hated that he hated that so much and he got in this big fight with editors and all that and he took a sabbatical and when he came back he's like here's what i want to keep this thing going i want to sell the sunday strips I don't want to play by this panel layout anymore. I want to create them as I want to create them. Because he was a big fan of this guy named George Harriman, who created a, a cartoon way back when called Crazy Cat. And Crazy Cat had these big full page cartoons that were just beautiful. The panel layouts were really crazy and just, just really neat. And he wanted to get back to that. And so he got what he wanted. The last three years of the strip, his Sundays are like really cool looking. Like the panel composition is really out there and he really dives into the artwork he gets really big into the watercoloring these these lavish backgrounds and <laughs> the art looks really spectacular i mean you get more and more intricate the colors get crazy it just really looks so fantastic so his last strip was going to be a sunday so i'm like oh here we go it's going to be so great the story is calvin and Hobbes. they go out they've got a sled it's new fallen snow there's in the middle of the forest and it's just completely undriven snow and, you know, the world looks brand new. It's a fresh, clean start. And, you know, it's a day full of possibilities. They're getting on their toboggan and Calvin looks over his shoulder to Hobbs and he goes, it's a magical world, Hobbs, old buddy. Let's go exploring. And they take off and they go sledding away. 
And that's the end of the, the strip. That's the end of Calvin and Hobbes. Honestly, it's, it's Star Trek six is right. It's the second start of the right and straight on until morning. It's, 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 <laughs> yeah. it's ending as beginning. Yeah. There's a circularity to it. And he makes a point of ending it in that same kind of place. But, you know, knowing what Watterson went through, you know, and why he was leaving the strip and all that, he was himself turning a page in his own life as a careerist, as an artist. And so this was not just a matter of, you know, Calvin's having one more day to explore as a child. It's Watterson is kind of getting back to that as well. So I, I always love that. But artistically, this thing is great because the scene is all snow. I mean, the, there's so little color in this particular strip. He handles just the slightest black details to let you know that there is a world covered under all this heavy snow. But the only things in color really in the whole thing are, are Calvin and Hobbes and their toboggan. We have no choice but to focus on these two beloved characters doing what they do best, which is enjoying life and, and loving each other with their whole heart. And I think this strip is just such a great statement on new chapters, new possibilities, childlike glee and venturing into the unknown. This strip really kind of, um, it put Calvin and Hobbes in a different place for me mentally forevermore because I, like a lot of people, I expected the strip to end with Calvin kind of growing up a little bit and moving on, like putting Hobbes into a box and, and moving away uh, from that and maybe, you know, running into Susie and being less of a jerk towards her or something like that, you know. I was 25 when this thing landed. So I was at an age when I'm like, yeah, deconstruct everything and this moves on and, you know, everything ends. And, and, uh, and Watterson was like, nope, that's not how we do this. That, that We do it like this. And it kind of gets to this purity of the vision, which is like, you know, looking at a certain point in your life and what the world looks like and feels like when you're a kid like this. And of course it ends, you know, and, and that's, that's not the point. The point isn't that it ends. The point is, this is what he imagined it felt like at that time. And that's in amber, you know, and, and as a result, all Calvin Hobbes is in, is in amber like that. And I love that. I love that so, so much. And I thought it was, it was just such an artful way to end, to end the series on such a, such a great note. You nailed it right there. Like that, 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 leaving it in that space, like he's off with his, you know, remember this is his imaginary best friend. And, and, you know, like they're off in that imagination space that I referred to earlier. And it mm -hmm. leaves the whole strip in that. And I love that aspect of it. Like you absolutely nailed it right there. That, that is one of the biggest reasons why I love that last strip. Like he didn't pollute it in any way. No. Uh, Two thirds of the final panel is white space. Yeah. It's white. white. Space. Mm -hmm. It's pure white. It is. There's so much going on in this one panel, honestly, like from a visual standpoint, for a guy who beat himself up over what certain people thought of the highness or lowness of cartoon art, this guy did some master class level stuff with composition, mm. with colors, with line work, with frames. I mean, he, I mean, there's a lot going on here that if you don't understand the craft at all, you're like, well, just, just panels. Like, no, 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 no. He's doing some amazingly sophisticated stuff here and bold choices. Like he knows how to be able to spot the scene and you can leave a whole panel white. I mean, that's, that's not, that doesn't just happen, <laughs> you know? That's a master draftsman at work, and it's so cool to see. That it. reminds me of, like, those Japanese tapestries they have where there's a lot of white space yeah. and your imagination's really just supposed to fill in the rest mm -hmm. of it. The more the strip goes on, the more I love to look at it. I mean, I've always enjoyed the visuals of it, especially those Sunday strips. Some of them, I think, became greater stories. He told these remarkably funny or touching stories just visually with so little dialogue in them, and they're, they're so, so, so good. <laughs> There's what he does where um, 
Calvin gets an A on something for the first time. And it's this, it's this, this little panel of Wormwood like, here you go, Calvin. Very good. And pretty much the whole rest of this thing is this massive panel of Calvin like at the head of this massive like world appreciates Calvin parade. And there's like a massive like statue slash float of Calvin coming down main street. Like it's just like, yeah, Calvin, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, it's just one panel. It's so funny, but it's so well drawn. It's so beautiful to look at. So. I cannot say enough about the art. It's so simple. Yeah. And so evocative. It's just, it's deeply emotional. You framed it earlier, Bill saying that this panel is what the artist imagined life as when he was six but visually it represents that it's so simple and so clean and yet so vivid and i think back to being a kid where and especially in the color panels on, on the sundays every leaf is drawn itself and, I, and you talk about his winter i loved his autumn column his, his autumn mm. strips because they were so explosive with color with the fall color and what i remember yeah. most about a kid was i paid attention to the colors of leaves you know, as a New England kid, whatever. But like, I would look and you, I could pick, you know, 40 different colors. Yeah. And people would be like, oh, that's yellow, that's red. I'm like, no, no, there's 40 different colors here. And the trees in his fall, and his fall strips do. Yeah, yeah. Because he, paints, he, he paints each of them different. It's not like, oh, here's some reds and yellows yeah. or whatever. It's, it's, he does it with that care to what a six-year-old would see. And I, I love that. And, and to your other point where you talk about how the strip was left off, I was at um, my son's baseball game the other night and my father came to see it and it was really hot and it was a beautiful summer night. And I was talking to my dad and he goes, you know, this is what summer was like when I was a kid and summer never ended mm. for a second. My dad was a kid. Right. And I could, I could see it on his face and I could see, and that line of like Calvin and Hobbes never did it. No. And he, he gave us that. He said, this universe kept yeah. going and he was six forever yeah. and we're able to, to stay there rather than, as you said, giving it some button where we all know, we don't know how it ended. And we can all yeah. talk about whether Calvin became a sociopath or a great guy. <laughs> yeah. But it didn't, matter. it didn't matter because he was six forever. When Calvin and Hobbes gets poignant, it really lands true. This is the same strip that like two months before had a Sunday strip in which Calvin was vividly imagining what it would be like for Tyrannosaurs and F-14s to be strafing other dinosaurs, right? Which is like, one of the greatest comics ever published in the history of mankind and ever will be. It was so, so blink and funny. I mean, there's this one picture of this, 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 this T-Rex with fighter goggles cramped in this cockpit, like, aha, you know, coming in. It's just like, it just captures the glee of what a six-year-old imagines what it would be like for a T-Rex to fly a fighter jet and blow something up. It's just so perfect. And it's, and like, it, it captures that raw energy of Calvin being Calvin. But then he can stop and pivot and do this, right? And that is, that's black belt level stuff. I mean, that's, that's just astonishingly deft. And I love that he could do that, that he could hit you with this thing and hit you with this other thing. And you knew you were getting like four different cartoons in one. I, I always felt like that strip and, and, and to some extent, all of the Spaceman Spiff stuff oh, God. was, was a, an entirely superior version of snoopy and his biplane yeah mm -hmm. no I'm, yeah. I'm with you i'll back you on that 100 percent. you've already expressed your bias <laughs> it's not bias it's an opinion <laughs> <laughs> i get where chris is coming from i really do i do too yeah i mean that stop with camel joke got dragged out many many times <laughs> this had fresh stuff every single he was making up words he was you know like yeah. different parts of the ship oh and my the gosh pool. yeah 
disasters and everything. It was fantastic every time. I, I, it really was. And especially like when he would imagine like his parents messing with them or his teacher coming at him and he just like Calvin's escapist flights of fantasy where all of a sudden he's just imagining another world and like Wormwood shows up as a monster like Calvin it's like whoa <laughs> like he snaps out of it if you go back to those strips too like Wormwood's like the pattern on her dress <laughs> is like the pattern of the skin on the monster <laughs> yeah exactly it's like on her belly ribs or whatever. It's, it's, so, it's so funny. It's, 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 it's also good. Of the possible endings, this strip ended in the best possible way, which is why I think we keep talking about it because it's like, even though it ended, it's like it, it ended, but it didn't finish. Right. And I think that's a, that's a really important distinction. Well, look, Tom, I'd love to get to your moment of truth. Watterson like did some great things, you know, with just Calvin like playing in the snow. But like, you know, yeah. my mo- my moment of truth is like really like the snowman strips. <laughs> so th- these things kind of like emerged over a period of time. You know, like you'd have like these typical winter strips with Calvin pelting Susie with snowballs, like doing all that greasy kid stuff. But then you start to see like a couple of strips come in where like Calvin's building snowmen and like he makes one with this big wide open mouth and puts himself into it. (laughs) Now he's starting to get like a little bit creative and you see like this gag start to emerge that became like a recurring gag, but not before we get to the snow goon strips. Do you guys, did you guys go through those? Yeah. <laughs> it was just this little mini arc that came out of nowhere where like Calvin builds a snowman. He's like Frankenstein type style trying to like bring it to life. And the next thing you know, he's being chased around the yard by this mutant two headed <laughs> snow goon, which, you know, they named one of the books after yeah. Attack of the deranged mutant killer monster snow goons. So, you know, there was a number of strips of that and then thereafter you would have this occasional hit where you know he would have all these snowmen in various states of being destroyed and then there's one with a noose around his neck there's one you know <laughs> cut in half by a toboggan yeah there's yeah. one standing there looking at this like gaping <laughs> hole gaping in his hole. chest from a cannonball like <laughs> it was just fantastic and like you know yeah. there was a great payoff line in each one like calvin's yeah. dad would say something like oh you know the people at the office don't have to put up with this nonsense like <laughs> yeah Susie Durkin says, hey, you know, like they haven't sold a house on this street in <laughs> years. Like it's a great payoff. Snowman <laughs> 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 <Stop, laughs> actually impacted real estate prices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love this. And I think the reason why it hit home for me is, you know, why it's like my moment of truth. And like, I didn't discover this until I was a dad. It's like, kids are deranged, man. They're just deranged. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. When you're six and you yeah, don't have miss. that, like, you know, moral, uh, you know, compass installed fully yet. I mean, some of my own kids, Jack, you know, at one point said to me, like, this certain bad man that he sees on TV all the time, you know, he's like, well, you know, why don't we just kill him? here's why we don't go around just killing people we don't like you know but like until they have that installation of that in their head kids are pretty damn deranged when you see some of these things you're like this is like right on the edge of you know, there, there might be something wrong with this kid that's to me what took it right up to the edge and I, I thought it was just so fantastic every time like this would be one of those things he would go back to like yeah. you know dad telling lies and everything <laughs> every time he did it it got funnier and funnier oh and funnier and it just yeah. like I, I didn't mind him ever reusing the, the concept because it, no. it just got better every yeah. single time. <laughs> Watterson was a master at knowing how well he could revisit a theme. Mm-hmm. 
and he had enough of them that when he came back to it, it was a welcome return as opposed to a, oh, he's just going back to it to another well. Like, it, cause it was always- It's cause the, the last one was always so good. It was always so good, yeah. The first snowman one I really remember was where <laughs> Calvin stages this car wreck. So he basically has these like, yeah. the snowman like in pieces off the hood of the one car and all these other snowmen standing around like expressions of horror on their face. And then the mom and dad are walking by and dad goes, I think we need to get that kid to a psychologist. <laughs> and it starts there. <laughs> It's his father's responses to it. Like that was a big part of the snowman. Yeah. Like father's yeah, because he did it for his dad. Oh. Like, his dad was the audience. <laughs> yeah, I think Clearly. so too. And there's a there's one that I love where dad's driving to work and there's all these snowmen and, and they're protesting with the signs of dad's Calvin's dad is unfair. You know, Egad, bad dad. Yeah. And and, and and it's Calvin's dad is looking out the window and he says, Nobody else at the office talks about stuff like this. And, and, and just like, but there's a there's a there's a hint of pride. Oh yeah, place. yeah. Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah. He's like, think. yeah. Right. Like he's like, my kid is messed up, and I dig it the most. <laughs> <laughs> There's this one he does where his dad's coming home while he's basically walking up the the walk, and there is this massive phalanx of snowmen all saluting him as he comes in, and he's like, he knows I hate it when he does this. It's so funny. There was one where his dad, I think it was his dad, reacts like, well, it is like slowing traffic down on the block. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's such a it's dad my, thing to say, too. You know, like my dad would always curse when somebody came around the yeah. bend in front of our house too fast. You know, <laughs> I think that was the one where he and the mom are looking at, and there's a snowman. It's basically like a snowman witch doctor. It's like it's holding up like small little like shrunken heads with hair of bundled sticks. There's another one where you get another Susie Durkin's reaction or going off the top of the head of the yeah. <laughs> yes. doing a brain Walking transplant. Away. Yeah. 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 She's like, I gotta go. Yeah, I'm just out. Like, forget it. Yeah. You know what's funny is that the Calvin and Susie dynamic, right? It starts off as kind of a typical like mild crush for each other. But what I thought was really courageous is how as the strip goes on, that doesn't particularly deepen or anything like that. The only time we really see it is when like Hobbes gets involved and it's like, whoo-wee. We can see through Hobbes' reaction that Calvin definitely has, yeah. he's, like, he, he's into Susie, but he's a six-year-old boy. So the way he's best equipped to express that is by tormenting her, right? But by the end of the strip, she's so used to this, like disregarding, like, I gotta go, you weirdo. You know, and like the snow stuff is where it comes out because she's like, dude, like, <laughs> that's way above my favorite. Yeah, there's a gotta... point where she, every time she goes into one of those lunch strips, she's like, don't tell me what's in your lunch. You know, like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, with the snow, I gotta say, and Susie, so Calvin has this obsession with just blasting her with snowballs. Calvin and Hobbes would often set up these grand ambush schemes and usually just end up fighting each other. But one thing I noticed is, and this gets back to the art, is that Watterson had this gift for throwing a snowball impact and making it look like it landed with 400 foot pounds of pressure, right? Just <laughs> bam! <laughs> there are these pictures of Susie laid out. And, and, it looks like she's dead. Like, this blast of snow around her form. You're like, good grief. You know, we see like Hobbes unleashes on, on Calvin. He's like, he's like, just getting plastered. Yeah. There was one that was masterful. It was one panel, but it chronicled like four snowball impacts. And it was fantastic. Yeah. Like, it, it's, it's so good. Off. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's yeah. so, so good. I will say that, you know, just briefly on the Calvin and Susie dynamic. I love what you said, the whole less is more, like it hints at 
the you know it's six year olds right so there there isn't going to be obviously anything overt children flirt by making fun of each other if you like someone you insult them and them and there's this one great one where they do insult each other and at the end calvin looks at susie and he says it's shameless the way we flirt (laughs) (laughs) i I always love that it's like this 50s screwball comedy yeah yeah, yeah, exactly Exactly. There was so. another strip where, you know, in the snow, direct evidence against the whole sociopathy thing where, you know, oh my God, like he hits her with a snowball so hard and she fakes like her eye falling out. Yes. And then you yes. see that one. like 180, like, oh my God, I knocked like, oh my guy out. Yeah. And he's like, what do I do? What do I do? And like, you know, it's obvious that he cares about her. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He yeah. Can take things too far. Well, uh, he, he didn't mean to hurt her, but there's a great little turn back when, he, when he's like, can you, he's like, he's, he goes, when I find it, can I look at it? <laughs> like, right. Like, you know, that, like, yeah. if I find your disembodied eyeball, can I just mess with it for a second if I put it back in the skull? That is not counter evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to what I wanted to say about these strips, which are, Tom, agreed among the very best in the canon. There's a strip I, I actually only saw today. I, I had never seen it before. Calvin has built a, a snowman or a snow chicken. Yes. Ne- next to a, a, a tree who has just used an axe to behead a snowman. And the, the snowman's head is lying on the ground next to the stump. And uh, the only text is Calvin talking to his mom, who's you know standing there with her hands in her pockets looking stern. He says, oh yeah? Define well-adjusted. yeah that's so great about these things they had such great payoff lines there's another with there's a sort of alien looking octopus creature like just hurling snowmen into its mouth (laughs) calvin's dad's walking by and he's like i don't think that the teacher's assigned enough homework or something (laughs) (laughs) it's his whole tableau it's like yeah it's this like cthulhu preying on the minions kind of moment (laughs) I love it's so it. Good. It just got better every time. Oh my god! There's also one near the end of the whole thing where it's just a single panel, and it's a snowman who. There's a snowman, and he's bowling, right? And the pin's knocked over, but the ball is a snowman's head, and there's a snowman behind him, like holding his arms up, like you took my head. <laughs> and they're leaving, and Calvin's like, first she says go out, now she says come in. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, yeah, WTF, man. man. Yeah, right? It's like, I can't win. Like, dude, <laughs> like, you're scaring the neighbors. You really are. Who here still has a favored stuffed animal from childhood who has stayed with you and is still in your house now? Oh, not I. Really? Yeah, well, well that's because my favorite stuffed animal uh, I wore out as a child. And mm-hmm. when it was replaced, I had wanted nothing to do with it. I mean, yeah, just like, <laughs> Get this just like a me. comic strip. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, I have Ollie the octopus, who's a little beanbag octopus that I loved very, very dearly when I was when I was a kid. He was the companion of Jerry the giraffe. Jerry did not make it over the years, uh, but Ollie I still have, and uh, he is up in my daughter's room. She never really got an attachment to Ollie the way she did to other things that are that were her own. She got her own. Ollie lives; he's still there. I will probably go find him uh, and give him a hug after this episode. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Tom, how about I, you? I, I, yeah. Uh, I didn't get attached to anything like that. I don't think when I was a kid, or if I did, I don't remember it, honestly. I do still have a small bear that was mine apparently coming home from the hospital, day one sort of stuff um, that I've kept, um, and who has traveled the world. He has gone, he went on deployment with my wife. Wow. My son has a red panda that he got that now is like 
Fredbear, you know, because I've been sleeping with him for 10 years. My youngest, when he was born on December 23rd, and so he came home on Christmas. My oldest, who was, you know, two at the time his brother was born, comes out to Christmas morning and there's all the presents and everything. And he walked over to all the presents and he took a stuffed giraffe and brought it back to his brother and put it next to him on the couch. And that was giraffe and he now he won't sleep without giraffe yeah. 10 years later or whatever yeah and i will go to my grave that'll be like one of the you know the three things that yeah. stays with me and the, the fact you know whatever stuffed animals we can laugh about them there's bags of them abandoned in the basement but when they when they hit and it's something that matters you keep that little part of your oh they're real your childhood with you it's a yeah it's a legitimate thing oh for, yeah yeah no, no for sure absolutely I, Bill, I think it's worth you know, reiterating what you said before we started recording about Watterson's refusal to monetize merchandise, you know, because you know he did not want stuffed Hobbes's breaking that that, that spell. No, there's only there's only one. Yeah, I, I, what worse thing could there be than two kids who both equally love their Hobbes bumping into each other and suddenly something cracks? I mean, you can't you can't do that to them. You just can't. And and yeah, that's. He stood up for his creation in a way that nobody ever did or would have, and he cost himself millions of dollars by his own admission. But uh, that, that kind of brings us to our final thoughts. So before we wrap up, I'd like to leave with this. In 2014, nearly 20 years after he ended Calvin and Hobbes, Bill Watterson made waves when he agreed to do his first new cartoon since he ended his classic strip. It was a single-page, 15-panel silent story paid clear stylistic homage to one of Watterson's chief influences, a guy I mentioned before in the podcast, the great George Harriman, uh, author of a strip called Crazy Cat. The strip was about this guy who gets locked out of his house by his dog while trying to retrieve the Sunday newspapers because he wanted to read the funnies. And the cartoon served as a poster advertisement for the Angoulême International Comics Festival in Angoulême, France. Uh, Apologies to anybody uh, who is offended by my horrible pronunciation of it, did my best. But that strip, that poster, became far more than just a strip or a poster. It became a collective reason for the entire comic-loving world to revisit Calvin and Hobbes once again and to marvel that a guy who hadn't been doing comics for so long still had such finely honed chops. You know, and perhaps to reflect on kind of a bygone world, a world in which there was a new Calvin and Hobbes coming in, you know, in every single day. You know, just as Calvin and Hobbes' final strip that I mentioned presents to us a world that's kind of paused in time, so too does Calvin and Hobbes kind of reflect a newspaper environment that no longer exists. Uh, the Bill Watersons of today would never have to struggle with the kind of constraints that Watterson himself did. One might wonder, should another creator of Watterson's skill and timing arise, will they find themselves able to pursue their vision longer than the decade we got with Calvin and Hobbes? You know, or without the pressure of syndication, the tyranny of panel layouts and all the rest, will today's and tomorrow's comic geniuses find themselves in a world you know, with far broader horizons than the one in which Watterson blazed his own trail. And these things are fun to speculate, but ultimately they're also kind of meaningless. I mean, the thing about great art, about truly great art, is how unique it is to the intersection of the artist and their environment. All great art is unique because all art is unique. Uh, that's what's so beautiful about art. That's why art is so important. Whether it's high or low or silly or sublime, art speaks to us in a language that transcends so much that it can instantly speak to our deepest hopes and dreams and fears and regrets, no matter how well we hide them. Watterson often commented in his strip, but also in, in the very few interviews he gave, about how cartooning was received critically. And it seemed to bother him that cartooning was, was considered a, a low art. 
And if there's any regret that this fan has about the cessation of Calvin and Hobbes and the near impossibility of reaching its crater, it's not to beg for more strips or for him to relent on his decision against merchandising. It's to tell him this. Calvin and Hobbes isn't just art. It is great art. Of its kind, it is perhaps the greatest art one might encounter in this century or so. It is great because it is earnest, because it is insightful, because it is forthright, because it is true. Bill, wherever you are, thank you for Calvin and Hobbes. It meant an awful lot to us. It still does, and it always will. Now, let's go exploring. Here, here. Guys, thanks for joining us. This has been Moments of Truth. We'll see you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com. <laughs>